always gets me in part because about 20 years ago, I was working at the Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. And we often did some work in one of the most challenging under-resourced neighborhoods in the island of Manhattan. It was called the Bowery Mission. And I remember one time, one night when I was serving there, one of the guys who was working there beckoned me to come over and he invited me to sit down at the piano and I said, it's been a long time since I've played. And he's like, I don't want you to play it. I just want you to know that you're sitting at the very piano where Fanny Crosby wrote the hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. And may the same spirit who gave the echoes of mercy and the whispers of love to her for that great hymn speak to us right now. Both of our daughters are in high school, and this has been a really challenging year for people in education, and we've been incredibly fortunate for the vast majority of the year. There's been fits and starts, but for the vast majority of the year, our daughters have been able to go to a classroom. There was one day just a couple of months ago where they canceled all of the classes at their high school not to send everybody home, but to pull everybody together. They moved everybody to the gym where they normally have pep rallies and they had their first of the year socially distanced with masked pep rallies. And they had the same cheers and they had the same songs and they had some of the same speeches. There was only one thing that was really different about this pep rally. The thing that was different about this pep rally is that none of the student athletes were actually at it. In other words, if you were an active student athlete in competition, you had to be in remote learning, so you were at home. Which begs the question, if you're having a pep rally and you don't have any of the student athletes there, who exactly are you pepping up? I mean, it's not like you're pepping yourself up, but like, woohoo, let's go back to Latin class. You just don't need that. And so the girls come home from the day they're sharing with this. My spiritual gift, my primary spiritual gift is sarcasm, and I am just laying into this pep rally with no student athletes there. And then all of a sudden, the little light bulb goes on above my head that says, from the voice of the Spirit. Rich, if you're not careful, isn't that what church is? That you can have the same songs and you can have the same cheers of Jesus Christ as risen today. You can even have some of the same speeches, which is probably if you only come at Easter, you probably think, I just give the same speech year after year. (laughs) And yet, if we're not actually in the game, if you and I are not a part of the competition in this world for the victory that has been laid out in Jesus Christ, then I ask the question, what exactly is it that we are doing here? Today I have a very simple purpose. My hope and my prayer is that we will go from an Easter pep rally to becoming more and more of an Easter kind of people. And are you willing to go on that journey with me? 
There was some research that came out just in the last week from the Barna organization. The research that came out from the Barna organization was polling people about a variety of their spiritual convictions and their knowledge, and the question that they asked people in this survey, these were questions that were given to active participants who claim to be Christian and are a part of a church, and the question was, have you ever heard of a little thing called the Great Commission? And as you can tell from the graphic, a majority of church-going active followers of Jesus said that they had never even heard of the Great Commission before, and that even a small minority of the other said that they don't really recall the Great Commission, but maybe they've heard of it. You need to know that this made your pastor mad. Not on my watch. Not this Easter. Not this congregation. You want to guess what the text is for today? It's called the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, after the moment of the empty tomb, Jesus comes to the women and appears to them first and tells them that he is going on ahead of them to Galilee, and there he will meet them. And when they get to Galilee, Jesus is there, and he addresses the disciples of Jesus in the first ever Easter sermon. And by the time we're done with this message, I hope that you'll not only recognize the Great Commission, you'll not only know it, you'll begin to live it. And so I'm going to put the words on the screen, and why don't you say it with me? And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Scholars point out that one of the remarkable repetitive patterns of these few words of Jesus is the number of times that the word all appears. It's kind of masked in the way that we translate it, and so let me show you how it comes across. All authority in heaven and earth has been given me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey every command, which is the same word in Greek for all, and remember that I am with you always. Same word, all, 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 all. The point theologically is very clear is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes all of life. And that's what it'll take if we're gonna have this not just be an Easter pep rally, if we're gonna become an Easter kind of people. And so let's talk about the different dimensions of this. First, we're going to talk about how all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus Christ, and so we go. Over 2,800 times in the Bible, the verb to go appears. It happens a lot in the present tense, but it can happen in the past tense. It can happen in the future tense. It can be something that has occurred, or it is something that has ended, or it is something that is ongoing. But the Bible is a book of a people and a God who are on the move. It all began with Abraham. 
First command that God gives to Abraham is for him to go to a land that he doesn't know. And then one of Abraham's descendants, a guy by the name of Jacob, gets called to go back to reconcile with his brother Esau. And then one of Jacob's sons is a man by the name of Joseph, and God calls him to go to Egypt in order to save the people from a famine. Generations passed, and then there's this figure named Moses, and Moses is called to go back to Egypt where he is a wanted fugitive because he is going to serve as the ambassador for rescuing and redeeming God's people. And then there's a man by the name of Joshua, and Joshua is called to go into the promised land to inhabit it. And then there's a woman by the name of Ruth, and she is called to go with her grieving mother-in-law, Naomi, to become a foreigner in a land where she doesn't worship their gods and she doesn't know any of the customs. And then there are prophets and kings and people who are called over and over and over again to go. Prophets like Jonah, who is told to go to a people that he doesn't like and the people don't like him and he is called to preach a message of forgiveness. Maybe you know what it's like to feel the Spirit of God tug you to do something. The question is, did you go? I'm not so much talking about relocation as much as I am talking about action. One of the things that's changed for us in the last 10 years is that we have started adopting devices that are starting to intrude their ways into our lives. I'm thinking specifically of a device that I wear around my watch on my wrist, which is a watch, but it's also a fitness tracker. This watch regularly tells me in the name of Jesus Christ that I am a lazy bum. (laughs) You've been sitting too long and you need to stand up. If you don't stand up, you're gonna die. Seems like you've stopped breathing, you need to start breathing again. But the most thing that it's persistent about with me is this little thing that has to do with activity. It has an activity monitor in it. It is called in the Apple kind of ecosystem, it is called the move ring. And regularly my watch says, you're not moving enough. And I wonder if there is a spiritual equivalent to the move ring in your life, where the Spirit is prompting you and poking at you to say, hey, you've been sitting and taking this news down for way too long. You need to get going. Back when I was a pastor in San Antonio, Texas, I was having lunch one time with a retired officer of the Air Force. And I was hearing his story of how he had moved from this place to that place to this place to that place. And after he was done, I was a little lost. And I'm like, wow, you have moved a lot. What was that like? And he said, actually, it was really straightforward. When your mission is clear and you trust the people giving you orders, you don't even think twice about it. And I remember being convicted to hope to become the kind of Christian that the mission is so clear in what we're doing and that we trust the one who is giving us the orders that we will take quite seriously all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus and so we 
will not just stand there, but move. Secondly, if we want to become Easter people, we need to know that we're called to go to all nations. And so we baptize. Most of us, many of us, I presume, have been baptized in this room. You may have not been baptized in this church. Maybe you were baptized in a different church. Maybe you were baptized with a little bit of water. Maybe you were baptized with a lot of water. Maybe you were baptized standing at the front of a church. Maybe you were baptized on the shore of a river or a body of water, and you were submerged. And it doesn't matter what tradition you were baptized in. If you were baptized in Jesus' name, the imagery and the theology behind your baptism is one and the same that you have been buried and now you were raised with Christ, that you have died and now you were being reborn in Christ. That phrase being born again or reborn is, is kind of elusive, almost like kind of a spiritual catchphrase today, kind of a Christian cultural term. I love how Tim Keller actually describes it. He says, to be born again means not to become just an improved person, but a new one. Paul writes that if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. He does not mean that literally everything about us changes when we are born again. Rather, something radically new comes in and everything within us changes places and is reconfigured. In a famous passage, Paul says that in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free, for all are one in Christ. And yet that does not mean that these distinctions are obliterated. The newness then of the new birth is not that all the various features of your life, your gender, your nationality, your social class, and so on pass away. Rather, none of them function any long as your chief identity factor. They no longer serve as your main significance and security or as the main maker of your self-regard and self-definition. With one person, a nationality, I'm Irish, might be less an identity factor than her vocation. I'm a successful lawyer. But in every case, there is something that we are most proud of, something that enables us to feel confident that we are good people and that our lives are justified in Christ. This is what changes all other identity factors are matters of performance or pedigree, and they not only make us insecure, they also tend to make us tribal and cold towards those who do not share our identity. Do you see why this is significant? When you were baptized in Christ, when someone is baptized in Christ, they are given a whole new identity. And it doesn't mean that you are no longer of that ethnicity or of that family. But what it does is it reorders all of those things in a whole new way. Your vocation, regardless of what it is, all of that becomes secondary to your primary identity as now a follower of Jesus Christ, as a child of God, of someone who is loved my friends, this is so important for us right now because the biggest problem that we are having in our fracturing society is that we have lost our common identity, we have lost our godly identity, and the only identities that we have left are the little markers of the ways that we feel like we are distinguished from one another, and there is always a constant jockeying for position and power 
and prestige of what those little micro-identities are, and that we, we will never have peace, we will never have unity, we will never have a harmonious society until we can come to terms with the larger story and that our identity comes from God and from God alone that you were created in his image. And so as our society becomes more secular, G.K. Chesterton writes it like this, the result of ceasing to believe in God is not that one will then believe in nothing, it is that one will believe in anything. We have gotten to the point where we are worshiping our own little identities. My childhood pastor, when I was ordained, said to me some of the most important words ever spoken of my life. He said to me, Richard, remember that the authority by which you do what you do in ministry is given to you at your baptism and not in your ordination. I am a child of God first. And if I ever put my identity as a pastor above being a child of God, I will inflict great harm on my own soul, my family, and on this church. Your identity above all is as a child of God. And it doesn't mean that you stop becoming the cultural background that you are. What it does mean and that this is empirically true. The Christian movement in the world is the most multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multicultural, multi-economic movement in the history of creation. And that the church is the solution to our division. To become an Easter people, we need to realize that all authority comes from God, and so we go. To become an Easter people, we need to realize that our primary identity comes to us in our baptism, that we are children of God. To become an Easter people, we need to recognize all of the commands that Jesus has commanded us to do. I decided as a little bit of an exercise to take the commands of Jesus from the book of Matthew and just to share them with you. You okay with that? You got time for this? Okay. Jesus commanded us to follow him, to repent, to rejoice, to shine with good works, to have the right motives and not just the right behaviors, to reconcile quickly, not to lust, to keep our word, to go the second mile, to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies, to finish what we started, not to be showy, to store up treasures in heaven with generosity, to seek his kingdom above all, not to judge, not to waste what we've been given, to pursue what is good by asking and seeking and knocking, to do to others as we would have them do to us, to go the narrow way even when it's hard and not popular, to watch out for false teachings and false lies, to practice, to put into practice what is good, to pray for others, to live with both wisdom and gentleness, not to be afraid, to listen for God's voice, to rest, to honor our parents, to deny ourselves, to welcome little children, to work out problems directly and in community, to be aware that our possessions don't possess us, to forgive indiscriminately, to honor marriage, to have the mindset of a servant, to love the Lord, to love our neighbor, to wait with anticipation, to share in his table, and to pick up in his cross. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have mastered all of those commands? 
Didn't think so. So congratulations, you have all just been enrolled as students of Jesus. And that your lifelong quest and mine is for us to become disciples or learners of Jesus Christ. Dallas Willard refers to this as the great omission within the great commission. That in the great commission, we focus on the nations and the baptism, and we forget there's this little part about making little students of Jesus to do the things that he commanded us to do. So imagine for a moment, with that list in mind, imagine what your family would be like if you took those commands seriously. Imagine what your workplace would be like if you took those commands seriously. Imagine what our city would be like if we took those commands seriously. Imagine what our country would be like if we took just that list of commands seriously. And here's the catch. I don't think you get to pick and choose which of those commands that you like because when you do that, you're worshiping the God that you want instead of the God who is. So to become Easter people, we go, we baptize, we learn, and finally, we remember. What do we remember? We remember. We remember that God is with us always. One of the best little short videos that I saw this year is of a woman confined to her wheelchair, riddled not only with old age, but with Alzheimer's. She used to be a professional ballerina. They put headphones on her ears and they began to play the music of Swan Lake, watch the screens.
actual photograph of her dancing when she was younger. As much as she's forgotten, she remembers the music and she remembers the dance. She hasn't forgotten that. You and I will forget a great deal in this life. And when the ancient patristic fathers of our faith described the Trinity of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the word that they used to describe the interplay and the interworking of God's presence is that God is in an infinite dance in which He extends a hand and invites you to join right in. You will lose abilities, you will lose memory, God is with you all your days. And so in order for us to become an Easter people, we're going to need to do a couple of things. And I wonder just for a moment if you might reflect, do you need to be moved by the Spirit of God to do something to go? Do you need to realize that your identity is not in a part of your job or what you can accomplish or where you're from, but that your identity is in Christ? Do you need to take a step to be a serious student of Jesus to do what He actually said to do? Or maybe today you need to be reminded, to be reminded that there is a heavenly dance that is taking place in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and He invites you into that dance. And in that moment, not all is lost. As we close, right before the Great Commission is a strange little detail in the Gospel of Matthew. It says this, when they, referring to the disciples, saw Jesus, this is the risen Jesus Christ that they see, they worshiped Him, but somewhat doubted. Maybe you came today with a conviction. Maybe you came today with some doubts. You can bring your faith, you can bring your questions to Jesus. And you can worship Him. I don't want this to be an empty pep rally. I want this to be a mobilization of God's risen and resurrected people. And so let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be able to serve you and to love you in this place. And we ask for your forgiveness of saying the songs and the cheers without any conviction to do anything about it behind it. And so God, as we sing, as we pray, May we be reminded that Easter is not just a celebration, it is a mobilization of your goodness in the world. And so help us to recognize the faith of those who have gone before us, the faith, I'm thinking right now of even a George Herbert who died before he was 40 years old, who at once said that death came as an executioner, but the gospel has made him into a gardener. Will you change our lives? Will you take the dark and empty and dead portions of our lives and by the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, will you now turn our graves into gardens?